The truth of those words in that psalm, one, are before us tonight as we turn to the book of Exodus chapter 32. We do indeed see the blessing falling upon those who chose to follow the Lord and the Lord's command, but we also see God's judgment falling upon those who failed to restrain their feet from sin. Exodus chapter 32. Let us hear God's breathed out word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the people said to Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly. Out of the way that I commanded them, they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp, but he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, 
Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. But when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of the Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place to which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's bow in prayer asking for God's blessing upon it. Our merciful Father, we read this story and we stand in disbelief how the Israelites and all that they had been through, all that you had done for them, Father, could turn their back on and build a golden calf. And yet, Father, we are reminded of our own hearts, that Father, as has been said before, that it is nothing but an idol factory. Father, we just pray that we would see the beauty of Christ, that in his glory these idols would melt away. And Father, we would understand the price that was paid on his behalf for us. And, Father, that we would live out our lives in a way that bring you glory and honor. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And amen. For those of you trying to decipher the COTB after the title on the sermon notes, that stands for Creatures of the Bible number 8, just in case you're trying to figure that out. Rather than writing all out, I simply summarized it in that way. This is the eighth sermon now, then, that we've had on these creatures of the Bible. Although, as we have looked at, there are many, many 
stories in between where we began this journey and where we are now that includes them. Last count, I heard that one of you was up to somewhere around 40 different uh, events in Scripture. It'll be interesting to see as we continue to uh, prod one another's memories on these things uh, where we might come to at the end of this as well. But it's necessary for us to understand this particular passage to know, first of all, Israel's journey up to this point. They have been at a place called Mara, M-A-R-A-H. It's a place right after leaving, or soon after leaving, uh, the Red Sea of watching Pharaoh and all his hosts drown, the soldiers washing up on the sea. Moses breaks into song along with Miriam. The people of God rejoice at this great victory that the Lord has brought them. It isn't long, and they're at Mara. And there they encounter not springs of great and wonderful tasting water, but springs of bitter water. And they complain. Moses brings the complaint to the Lord. The Lord shows him a tree to throw into the water, and the water is made well so that the people can indeed drink. Shortly after that, the people complain that there is no food. So God sends them bread from heaven, manna, and quail to eat. At Rephidim, another stop on this journey, uh, they receive, once again, water from a rock this time. Uh, After their complaining and stiff-neckedness, as the Lord remarks in this passage, the Lord uh, shows Moses the rock, and he does indeed bring forth water from it. Also at Rephidim, there is a victory over the Amalekites that's going to come back over and over again in Israel's relationship with the Amalekites. The Amalekites had attacked Israel in the rear, their back flank where the older folks who couldn't walk quite so fast, some of you can relate, those of you who have young children who could not make the journey quickly, those who were sick and those who were ill, that's who the Amalekites attacked. Because of that, God commands that Israel is to go after them and they win a great victory. It's the passage where if Moses' hands are up, they win. If they're down, they lose. Now they're at Mount Sinai. They arrive there back in Exodus chapter 19 where they encounter God's presence once again. A mountain in smoke and fire. A mountain that is quaking so much so that boundaries are set up that the people are not allowed to go past those boundaries. Moses, by the time we get to Exodus chapter 32, has been up on the mountain for a long period of time. I will admit it's a little hard to decipher exactly the flow and the location of Moses between chapter 19 and chapter 32. Some ways that it can be read, it sounds like Moses makes journeys up and down the mountain on several occasions. He goes up, comes down, up and down, up and down. Other commentators will say, no, it's all one of the same event. He's gone up and it's God speaking the law to him while he is up there. That law that is now recorded on those two tablets of stone that is coming down. 
Either way, it would be safe to say, based upon what we find in Exodus chapter 2, that the two tablets of stone have never made their appearance yet in Israel. That's what Moses is bringing down upon this occasion. So much has happened there. Much has taken place. They have certainly seen the power of God. They have seen and experienced the grace of God, the mercy of God. They have seen God's deliverance of them on many occasions. That's when we secondly then, if you're following the notes, encounter Israel's sin. It begins with a plea. A plea to Aaron. A plea to, to make them gods. The past, you see, is still present with them. The past of their experience in Egypt and all those gods, uh, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago with the plagues, all of those gods that had surrounded them for some 400 years. It is a reminder to us that one of the sins of Jacob was indeed to stay past the provision that were given by Joseph. He was never told to stay there. He was never commanded to stay there. He was told to go there and that provisions would be given to him till the end of the famine, but life grew comfortable. They got wealthy. Why go back to Israel when we've got the land of Goshen? Yes, but we're surrounded by all these pagan deities. Yeah, we can survive that. We can get through it. But that which stubbornly persists with the people of Israel are these gods. So much so that if you recall, when we come to Joshua chapter 24, they've inherited Canaan, they've won the victories, and Joshua still has to say to them, put away from you the gods that your forefathers served. Well, what are those gods? These Egyptian idols. It is a reminder to us as parents that the culture does indeed dig its claws deep. Not only into our lives, but into the lives of our children. And if we think, oh no, there'll be pure light shining in the darkness, we should look at the example of leaving our children in the darkness for so long. That when our children are in the darkness for so long they don't even recognize the light anymore. Here are these people of Israel in the land of Goshen, surrounded by gods, and look at their cry, make us gods to lead us. Why? Well, they give their reason. Moses is gone. We don't know what's happened to him. He's been gone. If we follow the story and what has taken place, he's been gone for 40 days and 40 nights. He's been up on the mountain. Rather an impatient lot, I would say, in the fact that they stayed in Israel, or stayed in Egypt 430 years. Now, all of a sudden, they're really impatient, folks. But this is their plea. Make us gods. We need something to follow. See, even their understanding of Moses is wrong, isn't it? Do you notice there's no God mentioned here? It's either Moses 
or the idols. Give us the man. We need a man. We need a person to follow. Or give us, if we don't have the man Moses, then give us gods. No mention of the Lord. No mention of him. He's absent from their thinking. He's absent from their plea. Secondly, we read of the act here of Israel's sin. Aaron asked for their rings of gold that were in their ears. It's interesting that later on, we, Aaron, who, who makes all sorts of excuses later on, does not mention this fact. He just says, I asked for their gold, not the gold in their ears. It's an interesting thing because that was, you see, a sign of the fact that they belonged to the Lord. Remember when you were a slave and you got your freedom, you had your ear pierced? They belonged to the Lord. But they're taking, as it were, the sign of this. And they're giving it to Aaron. There is estimated that at this point in time from conservative theologians, from biblical theologians we would say, somewhere between two and three million Israelites. It's a lot of gold. Now we don't know if they all participated in this. There would be some evidence in the text that not every Israelite went along with this, but there's still a pretty good pile of gold sitting there in front of Aaron that got collected and brought to him. And what does Aaron do with this? Well, the text tells us that Aaron takes this, there is a melting of this, there is a casting of this. So they make the shape, a molten, they make a shape of a calf probably resembling one of those gods back there in Egypt that they had worshipped, that they had seen, that they would recognize. Oh, yeah, we're familiar with that figure. But you see, they, they make a mold of this. Then they pour the gold into the mold. And then when they take the mold off, Aaron takes an engraving tool to shape it, to form it, to give it all of its detail to give it its exactness, to give it its exclusiveness. Oh, he's going to tell Moses later on, oh, no, I didn't do anything, it just popped out. No. Their act was definite. This isn't some, we didn't know what was going to happen. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was creating for them a golden calf. It didn't just appear. He made it, he formed it, he fashioned it, he shaped it. But then, they begin to worship it. Look what happens the next day. Right? He received the gold from their hand, fashioned it, with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel. There is a declaration. There is a declaration that these objects are their gods. Now, did they really think that calf was a god? 
That probably means just like they had learned in Egypt. That was a representation of the God. That was a picture of the God. That was a form of the God. These are pictures. These are resemblances. These are images of the gods who have brought you out of Egypt. Think of the insult this is to Almighty God. The beginning when I was working on this sermon, our closing hymn was going to be immortal, invisible, God only wise in light and accessible, hid from our eyes. Yeah, there he is, a golden calf. Almighty God, a calf, a cow. That's all God is. God is just a cow, a cow with powers. That's what Israel is saying. But oh, he is so much more than that. He doesn't even come close to this, does he? There is no resemblance at all between the creature, the cow, the calf, and Almighty God. This is why we state that God cannot be in any way represented. Even when you look at that Sistine Chapel and look at the picture that has been made up there of God, that is so far short. That is such an insult to Almighty God. Who in light and accessible is hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Thou shalt not only have no other gods before me, thou shalt not make unto thyself a graven image which is exactly what these people have done. Not only is there a declaration, they build an altar. Aaron builds an altar. When he saw this, he built an altar. Oh, we ought to bring sacrifices to this thing. We ought to sacrifice to this cow, this golden calf. And what is an altar? What is a sacrifice but an act of worship? that they are engaged in. There is a feast that is declared. Verse 5, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. In other words, this ought to be a day of great joy for the Lord. The Lord ought to look down and go, wow, I'm so happy that my people are worshiping a calf. This is going to be a great day of feasting, a great day of celebration. But it's followed by a lifestyle, isn't it? Verse 6. They rose up early the next day. They offered those offerings. Burnt offerings and peace offerings. Things that God had actually commanded. They're using that which God has given to worship. A God. That's a calf. They have committed as Moses will say to the Lord, a great sin. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now children, that doesn't mean they got out a soccer ball or for some of you a football. Doesn't mean they got out the croquet set. Doesn't mean they started playing horseshoes. Doesn't mean they got out the chalk and made some hot scotch patterns. To play means they committed immoral things. 
They did wrong things. They did dirty things. They did shameful things. They followed the pattern that they saw of Egypt. They imitated the lifestyle and worship of the Egyptians. Where did they learn that? They lived amongst them for 430 years. So we hear their plea, we see the act, we see the worship. A great sin (coughs) against the Lord. Now Moses doesn't know what's happening. Moses is not privy to the events that are taking place. But the Lord is. And that's where chapter 32 takes us to next. The responses. First of all, there is God's response. I know what they're doing. I am full of wrath, and I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to consume them. I am going to wipe them out. People that he redeemed. People that he led through the Red Sea. People that he gave the Passover lamb to. People that he provided water and manna and quail. People that he had given a victory to. People that he is working on with Moses right now, writing with his own hand a law. People that he had covenanted with. I'm going to consume them. I am going to destroy them. Moses does not know what this is all about, right? Right? You got to think, there's Moses, okay? God's given him the law. And all of a sudden, it's, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to consume them. And Moses is like, whoa, hold on. And we read the word, verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God. He implores God. think, Think about this, Lord. What are the other nations going to think? If you brought them out here and now destroy them? What's going to happen? Remember the covenant? See, that's where we come to. That's what he's building to, verse 13. Remember the covenant? You made a covenant. You made a covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Israel. You said you were, I know you're saying you're going to start over with me, but, but Lord, Lord, Just remember the covenant promises. But there's another reaction of Moses, isn't it? He comes down the mountain. Maybe now he figures out why the Lord was so angry, right? He comes down the mountain and Moses, I'm going to use the term, he throws it down. Right? He gets to the foot of the mountain. He sees what is happening. He sees the sin. He sees the immorality. He sees the calf. He puts two and two together. And he takes those tablets and he throws them down. They break. But Moses not only throws down those tablets, he grinds up the calf. He throws down the calf. And, and, 
in my mind, I, I just, every time I come to this part of the story, I'm like, how did you go about doing this one, Moses? Okay. No? And he throws him in the water, and I'm like, what's the water? And some commentators will tell you it's the river that's still coming from the rock at Rephidim that follows the people of Israel. Anyway, the passage tells us he made them drink it. Get down on your knees. Drink up this stuff. Get rid of this stuff. Get rid of this image. But he also kind of throws down on Aaron, doesn't he? What were you thinking? I've heard that thing more than one time in my life as well. What were you thinking, Robert? What was going through your head? How did you come up with that? Why did you give in to the people? Why would you create, give and make such a great sin? And then he throws down a challenge. Who's on the Lord's side? Who is looking at this with the same anger that I am? Who's looking at this and, and realizes that what has been done is wrong, it's sinful, it's shameful? The tribe of Levi arises and comes. It would appear that the tribe of Levi either repented of this sin with Moses' challenge or, it, or had never participated in it at all. They go through the camp, killing those involved in this immorality. 3,000. 3,000. Rewarded, yes, verse 29. Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. From this point on, throughout the entire Old Testament, the priesthood, the temple service, the service at the tabernacle is all committed to the tribe of Levite as the ones who are holy. Bless the man who serves the Lord. Even as we see the wicked consumed. But there is more to the story. And that's kind of the heart of the story. This, this is almost kind of the, the preface. Now comes the heart of the story. The next day. And this too is, is, is interesting, isn't it? Moses goes up the next day. Attempting to be Israel's mediator. Look at how the text tells us about this. Verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Interesting language, isn't it? I, Moses, a man, I, Moses, a sinful man, will go up to the Lord and I will make atonement for you. That's his offer. He comes to the Lord with a bargain. Lord, either forgive him or kill me. Either you forgive your people 
or you take my life. Do you know what I find interesting about this passage? Is the Lord is absolutely dismissive. It's as if the Lord doesn't even hear this. But the Lord, verse 33, said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out my book, out of my book. But now go lead the people. In other words, I did not hear you, Moses. Oh, he heard him, but he didn't. He's not taking Moses up on this. He's not saying, oh yeah, Moses, you as a sinful person, you can make atonement for these sinners over here. Yes, Moses, that's what I'll do. I'll forgive the people and I'll blot you out of my book. No, my friends, that is reserved for but one, isn't it? See, if you come to this text and say, where is Christ? Here it is. Christ is present in the absence. Christ is present in the refusal of God to take the offer of Moses because there is but one mediator. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. No Moses, not even Moses, can offer atonement for the people of God. There is only one who is going to be blotted out So that forgiveness of God's people can be achieved. There is only one who for that period of time while he is on the cross, out of those words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There is only one. Not a man. But the Christ. The Son of God, the Son of Man. Fully man, yet fully God. Only He. Only He will do what Moses offers to the Lord. No, Moses, that's not your place. Your place is not to be the atoning sacrifice. Your job is to lead. Now get back down the mountain and go lead your people. How do we know that in some way God isn't taking up his offer because of what comes in the last verse? If forgiveness had really been achieved through Moses' offer, then this verse makes no sense. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. God continues to execute judgment upon them. And it will be judgment and judgment and judgment. Because no one, no person, can make that atonement. Save Christ. It's what we read in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, but that there is but one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. We read it in Hebrews 9, 15. We read it in Mark chapter 14, 24. We read it in Jesus' own words from John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
There is but one mediator. See, when I read this chapter, I know that I too have create, committed great sin. Our brother Doug prayed about that, right? That we're all idol factories. Our minds are idol factories. We're always fashioning gods like calves. We too have sinned a great sin. And I cannot make atonement for myself. You cannot make atonement for yourself. You can't atone for me. I can't atone for you. There is but one. And in him, we find forgiveness. That is the point of all the questions that were asked to Nate and Stacy tonight. Will you teach Reagan that she is a sinner and she cannot atone for herself? Will you teach Reagan that there is but one mediator, Jesus Christ? Will you do all you can? To teach her this. That's the point of baptism. To drive us to the one mediator who can wash us, who can cleanse us, who can make us whole. To the one mediator whose blood is shed to wash us of all of our sin. To the one mediator who gave his body and his blood so that we might never face God's righteous wrath and judgment. So that there will be nothing to ever separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. For the next week, reflect. Am I trying to save myself? Am I thinking that my good works, my efforts, my being in church, my coming twice a Sunday, my going to Sunday school, my praying, my having devotions, do I think that's what's saving me? Am I a Moses before God saying, I want to make atonement for myself, God? Or are we looking to Christ? And as we come to that table then, next Lord's Day morning, having reflected upon it, I pray, I pray that we come and see that it's Christ and Christ alone. In a baptism, at the table, in the Word, Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we see Moses' futile attempt here. And yet, Lord, you didn't dismiss him in wrath or anger. 
You set them to work. You send them back to the people to lead them. To lead them to the Christ. To lead them to the true Passover lamb. To lead them to the one sacrifice. To lead them to the one who could make atonement. Lord, we thank you that in your grace and mercy, you have led us to Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for our wrong thinking. Forgive us for the idle factories of our minds. But forgive us, Father, not because of that which we have done. Forgive us for Christ's sake. For it's in his name we pray. And all God's people say, Amen.